This is Champagne Problems, where we come together to explore the gray areas of drinking. This is a judgment-free zone where we can all take a look at how we make decisions about our relationship with alcohol. Welcome back, my fabulous friends. Today, Patrick and I are in the studio with Dr. Allison Karaski-Macy. Dr. Karaski-Macy is the CEO and Chief Medical Officer at Hopeway. Hopeway is a renowned behavioral and mental health treatment facility here in Charlotte, North Carolina. Dr. Karaski-Macy runs the show over there, so we're delighted to get to pick her brain. Let's dive in. Dr. Allison Karaski-Macy, welcome to Champagne Problems. Thank you for having me. So grateful to be here. We are honored to have you on. We are so delighted that you even agreed to participate. Your expertise and what you do professionally lines up perfectly with what we like to talk about here. I want to give you the opportunity first to give our listeners some, I don't know, call it a plug. Let's talk about Hopeway a little bit. Fabulous. So I am the CEO and Chief Medical Officer at Hopeway, and we are a mental health treatment center here in Charlotte. We have several levels of care, including residential day treatment as well as outpatient treatment for folks struggling with anxiety, depression, trauma, eating disorders, um, alcoholism, any other mental health and substance use disorder. Gotcha. Now, do I understand correctly that there's not a, a full-on addiction kind of wing, or, or do, do you do focus on some a lot Correct. of that? Correct. So a, a lot of our patients have comorbid substance sure. use disorders in addition to depression, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia. Um, we are a primary mental health facility. Mm-hmm. However, um, we do oftentimes have up to 30 to 50% of our population have a co-occurring substance use disorder. So we do treat the entire person, including their medical issues, their psychiatric issues, and their substance use issues. Got it. Awesome. Got it. Any any plans for that? I would love for that to happen. Yeah. Yes, I've been talking about it from, from day one, even with Patrick. Yeah, um, we've heard. We've heard. We <laughs> really need more increased service offerings here in Charlotte, and sure. um, hopefully um, in, in the future we can make that happen. Absolutely. We would be in full support. So give us a little background on you. How did you get into medicine? Actually, let's go before that. Start a little bit earlier. Where, where are you from? Okay. I'm from Chicago, Illinois, ah. and my father was a Chicago police officer. My mother is a teacher. Always loved higher education. I think I wanted to be a doctor since I was a very little girl. My mom says I you know, carried around that little fake doctor bag with the <laughs> yeah. plastic toys that we all give our children. Listen to everybody's heartbeat. Exactly. And really, I think just I'm a caring person, a people lover. I mean, I love to help people. And so I wanted to go into a, a profession where I could do that, um, as well as be a leader. And so um, in looking at healthcare, I wanted to be the leader of the team and, and go to medical school and to be able to uh, effectively decrease people's suffering. Mm. What made you kind of go towards the mental health route when you got into medicine? Yeah, that's a great question because originally I wanted to be a family doctor. I think what I learned during my family medicine rotation is it's really hard for primary care physicians because they have to know everything about everything. And sometimes that's really hard to manage when you're doing a 15 or 30 minute doctor appointment. And so I really wanted to specialize in something and become an expert in one thing so that I really could effectively treat the person knowing that I know everything about the illness that they're suffering with. 
So I know that you have somewhat of a history in treating addiction and substance use primarily. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and yeah. what your background was like before you came to Hopeway? Absolutely. So I did my psychiatry residency at Duke and then decided to go into forensic psychiatry because I love the law as well. One point wanted to be a physician and lawyer and decided that was way too many years of school. <laughs> um, so I think I merged my interest in law and medicine by doing a forensic psychiatry fellowship, which is training in really answering any question that psychiatry and the law interact in, whether it's criminal cases or civil cases. If, is somebody fit to go to work? Is somebody mentally ill? And that led to the alleged offense that they're charged with. Um, and so I really was on this path to being a forensic psychiatrist when um, I was helping out a friend at Fellowship Hall who needed some cross-covering work for uh, physicians. They needed somebody to run Fellowship Hall. And so um, I had been working there as a resident at Duke for many, many years and had a good relationship with the team. And so I was asked to come and fill his shoes. Um, and at that time, I did not have um, any specific training other than my training with Fellowship Hall um, and Duke in addiction medicine. And so I did get my addiction boards while I was at Fellowship Hall and really learned everything about how I treat people with um, addiction issues from Fellowship Hall. Did you come after Dr. Book? Yes. Oh, I love yes. that guy. Yeah, I love him too. What years were those? So I did my residency at Duke in 2001 through five. So during those years, um, I would help him, you know, when he was on vacation or if he needed coverage on a weekend. And so that was kind of called moonlighting when you were in medical school. And so I knew the nurses and the patients and really how they did everything. And um, so he trained me. He was my mentor. Wow. How, cool. how long were you there? Several years. Well, my my dear old dad can't, went through that program, and it's right around that time. So oh, you might have I might have crossed with paths with him. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. At that time, when you were at Fellowship Hall, you know, how did how did your kind of desire to treat mental health patients and people with substance issues kind of blossom? Like, how did how did your love for doing that kind of manifest itself while you were there? I think the amazing thing about Fellowship Hall and other treatment facilities like it is that you have the time to really properly diagnose yeah. somebody and figure out what's going on with them as well as to make a really complete treatment plan and address their mental health issues, their medical issues, and their substance abuse issues. Um, Fellowship Hall at that time, I mean, obviously all programs evolve, really didn't have the ability to manage high-level acute psychiatric patients mm -hmm. if you were manic or psychotic. Right. Um, and so it was always in the back of my mind, like, how could I, you know, lead a program that really did encompass everybody? And so there just really learned um, everything about the 12-step model and abstinence and recovery. Um, so many people don't understand recovery as a process and mm -hmm. a lifetime commitment. Mm -hmm. um, and so when we were at Duke and you would see patients with substance use issues in the emergency department, it was like a revolving door. It was discouraging. But at Fellowship Hall, you saw people get their lives back and get their marriages back on track and get their jobs back on track and then help them navigate the transition back into work, um, maybe with some restrictions. You know, I've treated physicians who needed me to write a letter that basically minimized the um, time on call or PTO, uh, <laughs> things that are really just important for self -care. wellness and <laughs> self-care. So just loved my experience there. And that's really the model that I then brought to California when I was treating people in several different addiction facilities. And then the model I brought to Hopeway, which is really to 
under one roof, be able to look at the psychiatric issues, the medical issues, and the substance use issues so that you can best prevent relapse. Because if you are clean and sober from alcohol, but you're still still depressed or you're hypomanic or manic, you're going to relapse. Sure. And so it's really, really imperative that you look at all of those issues when you're treating somebody for optimal success. Do you see alcohol use or abuse as being a symptom of the other stuff that you're referring to? Yeah. And so this is really hard for physicians too. Like what came first, a chicken or the egg? And so we get this question all the time. Well, you know, my son has a primary mental health issue, but he's also using marijuana and Kratom every day. Well, how do we know he has a mental health issue unless he's off of marijuana and Kratom every day? Mm -hmm. So what's really nice in the recovery units is that you can get somebody clean and sober and then you realize, well, their depression is cleared. We don't yeah. have to put them on medication for depression because it was a substance-induced mood disorder from their alcoholism. Mm-hmm. However, if after you know two weeks or three weeks or four weeks or even four days, depending on how long it takes the person, is not clearing and you're still seeing psychotic symptoms or manic symptoms or depressive symptoms, then you need to treat those psychiatric conditions. Mm-hmm. And so it's really optimal to have that time um, where you know that because you're in a controlled environment, the person is sober, and then what else is not getting better, and then tackle those issues as well. Yeah. Can you speak a little bit about how mental health intersects with kind of the cultural acceptability of alcohol use? Yeah. So that's a, a complicated question and broad, yeah. but in general, you know, folks who um, have primary depression or anxiety, and then they drink alcohol to decrease their anxiety or to make them feel better, maybe self-medicating. And so if you're drinking, you know, one or two glasses a night and you're not having any difficulty going to work or helping your kids with their homework or doing what you need to do, um, you know, some people can tolerate that, but there is a genetic predisposition to alcoholism. And so if you come from a family where your mother, your father, your grandfather was an alcoholic, then you have a risk, you have an increased risk factor. So at that point, you know, one glass could turn into three, which could turn into five. And so for people who have trouble modulating it, they'll say, I can't stop. You know, I'll be with friends and, um, you know, I'll have a glass or two. And some people just don't have the ability to stop. And that's the problem um, when it kind of escalates. But casual drinking can be difficult, too. Um, Even if you are just having, you know, one or two glasses a a night, that is a depressant. So if you have depression, it's going to increase your depression. And so if you're taking medication for major depression, but you're also drinking, they're also they're almost counteracting each other. Mm-hmm. And so for our patients with mental health issues, we do try and encourage sobriety. Now we all know that's not always possible. Mm-hmm. So my goal is always abstinence if that is an achievable goal. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think we need to be more open-minded as a treatment you know, culture that harm reduction does have a place. Um, and there's some programs that are really all or nothing and some people can't do that. Um, And so looking at medication assisted treatment and looking at harm reduction and moderation, Mm -hmm. um, can be (laughs) beneficial. We have the conversation all the time. Um, just meeting people where they are, you know, there's a, there's a reality around this sometimes. Absolutely. And so, you know, everybody's in a different stage of, change. And so are they ready? Um, Are they ready to take action and do something about it? And oftentimes what's challenging with any behavior is that sometimes that change doesn't come until you've hit the rock bottom. Right. And so at that point you're like, okay, now I need to do something. So (laughs) now I want to, (laughs) you know, maybe I've been gaining five pounds. Now it's 20 pounds and oh my goodness, now I need to to do something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So unfortunately that is a reality that we deal with every day with ourselves and our patients. Totally. 
I was actually a guest on a podcast recently and um, was talking about how, you know, it's always about, well, when did you get it? When, you know, when did the light switch and all that kind of stuff? And, you know, it's like for so long, I didn't want it. And I remember not wanting it. And I remember just saying, this is who I am. This is who I'm mm-hmm. going to be, and I'm okay with that. Live fast, die young, baby. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But that, but to the to your point, there's a lot of that kind of mentality where it's just like I I don't want to be perfect, you know, this <laughs> abstinence model and this like I just get everything perfect in my life. Well, I don't want to be perfect. Well, it, it's really hard to be perfect, and a lot of us strive for perfection, and that makes things even more difficult. And the models look like you're striving for perfection, which is a turnoff a lot of times. Exactly. Right. You know, the other thing people don't really understand the twelve steps, and they think, oh, it's religious, and I'm not a religious person. Person. No, right. your spirituality not, mm-hmm. can be the sun or anything that you feel inspires you. Um, and so there's just a lot of psychoeducation that we need to do with folks as well. Um, as well as less than 10% of individuals with a substance use disorder actually seek treatment. And that's a major problem. So, um, when you look at the statistics and you're looking at that 10%, um, the data shows that if you have say alcoholism that you then potentially, and you're seeking treatment that potentially you have then a 40 to 50% chance of developing major depressive disorder. So it's really interesting when you look at like the statistics, because we're only looking at that 10%. Well, what about all the other people that, you know, are maybe drinking to excess or maybe they're just unhealthily using alcohol. Don't have any consequences. Exactly. But there are still medical consequences. And I think people don't really understand that. When I was looking at the data in preparation, alcohol affects every piece of our body, right? But if you really sit down and think about it and you think about what you do for your health and you think about like for women's health, (laughs) breast cancer is a huge concern, right? So Mm -hmm. we're going for mammograms and we're checking ourselves and talking about making sure that, you know, we're healthy. Um, But even drinking one glass of alcohol a night increases your risk of breast cancer. Um, when you get to two to 3%, your, your chances go up to 20%. And you know, I don't even think about that sometimes. Yeah. People you know? don't know that. You just you just kind of block it yeah. out or you don't know. But you know, if, if you go on any of the websites and look at the effects of cancer from alcoholism, I mean, it's not just breast cancer. It's yeah. oral, um, rectal, colon. Uh, Esophageal. Es- yep. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's, it's scary. And unfortunately, scare tactics don't work. We know this, right? You can't go scare your kids. Like, you know, you can't just... You're going to get cancer. Give them this terrible story because that's not going to (laughs) work. You might get cancer. So before we were talking about motivational interviewing, I mean, that's just really important to see where the person is and their willingness to change and then have that individual look at the pros and cons of whatever behavior they're doing. It could be exercise, smoking, alcohol use, drug use, um, and how... And to get that person to want to stop for healthier reasons yeah um and that's a process that takes a lot of time and people have to be receptive to it i mean they got to be willing to engage in it they have to see that there's at least some type of negative consequence to their alcohol use before they'll even be open to that type of process and that's really hard last night i was over at the recovery high school we do a, a parent support group over there and the topic last night was parental substance use in, in the home with a recovering you know young adult or adolescent not for these parents in particular because they've been educated and they're they're really good spaces right now but in the past when i've been working with parents of, of adolescents and young adults you know, they tend to normalize their use of alcohol, even if it's just minuscule, you know, one or two drinks a night or, you know, I, you know, I have scotch when I come home from work to kind of take the edge off. But like one of the things that I always tell them, I'm like, if alcohol came out today, it would be a schedule one controlled substance and it would be illegal. 
And people don't really, they never think about that. Like next to meth, like alcohol is the worst. Yeah. Like, like for, for from a toxic toxicity level for your brain, for your organs, like absolutely, it's the same, it's, it's well, it's like so the hard for these yeah. kids because the parents are modeling that behavior. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that's why family therapy in recovery is so crucial because you've got to get everybody on the same page. Yeah. You know, if you have a child that was smoking marijuana every day and you want them to stop, well, then the husband cannot be smoking marijuana and right. drinking every night. Mm-hmm. And so I've had, you know, folks come to Hopeway where, you know, one parent wants help for their child, but the other parent won't get on board and it's not, not going to work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so it's really hard because you do have to treat the family. Yeah. No. So that that leads me to kind of a personal curiosity because recently I was speaking to someone and they were talking about generational trauma being passed down. Well, now there's there's a lot of discussion and I'm sure you know this way better than I do, but generational addiction being passed Absolutely. down. Absolutely. And often I, I I am curious as to the pass down. What is being passed down? And I've always been a big proponent of the behavioral modeling and mirroring and and you know. Um, you know, I use myself as an example, but my father was an alcoholic and he, you know, his personality was altered as a result of that. So my, the mirroring of my father was that of an alcoholic personality. And that's what I learned. And that's the voice in my head that speaks to me, you know, like as a, now we can talk about genetics and we can talk about how I process alcohol and what it does to me and all those things. But there's this other side that is truly learned. Yes. And so we always say it's a mix of genetic, environmental, and social factors. And so there is a genetic predisposition. You are at an increased risk if you have a parent who has alcoholism. Um, It it sometimes can be as high as 50 to 60% in terms of heritability. Um, So it's quite high. And so those people do metabolize alcohol differently. They respond to alcohol differently and (laughs) they can't stop drinking unlike other people. Um, And so there's the genetic piece. Then there's the environmental piece, which you've talked about where that's what's been modeled to you. And that's, it also becomes a habit. So, you know, thinking about having a glass of wine when you come home from work it might just become a habit where it's like, that's just what you do, but is that really necessary? Yeah. Um, you're drinking extra calories. You're really, I mean, like what are you actually getting out of it other than you're holding a glass in your hand and drinking a glass of wine? Mm-hmm. You might as well have a Tobo Chico. So hey, I mean, Chico. it's like, it's really <laughs> difficult because there's environmental factors, there's habits. Um, and then social factors, again, if you're out with friends or your spouse is still using and you're not. So it's, it's complicated. Yeah. Can you uh, the the social piece just sparked interest in me real real quick? Can you speak on the more of the you know because we were talking about predispositions, not exactly like risk factors while it's going on, but in terms of a predisposition, can you speak on a little bit of that social side? Like, what are some social factors that could? Because we hear a lot about the genetics, we hear a lot about the environment like the internal family system environment, but can you speak a little bit on like the social risk factors for people that don't drink, but grow up in a certain social environment that would potentially increase that risk? Sure. So other risk factors can include early exposure. So um, if you have a child who's drinking alcohol early on in their middle school or high school, that's going to be a risk factor for increased use, if not a substance use disorder in their life. Um, Stress in general, like how are people managing stress, um, as well as um, access to alcohol, if it's in the home and you're on vacation and your children are unsupervised, Um, but also your social network. And so, you know, if you're familiar with the 12-step model, you want to avoid those people, places, and things. Mm -hmm. Because you will go right back to what you were doing with those people. And that's like so hard. Think about it. If like someone said to you right now, you've got to cut off everybody that is in your social network. Um, I could probably do that. Except no, this kidding. person no, and that kidding. person. You know, it's hard for people. Yeah. 
Um, so nothing is easy, um, which is why we still have this problem in our country. Um, right. And it's unfortunately getting worse from the pandemic. They're estimating 60% of Americans are misusing alcohol and or other drugs wow. um, in light of the pandemic. And so mm-hmm. we're going to see continual difficulties yeah. with this as we move forward. And the fallout from the pandemic is probably going to increase those numbers. Too. Absolutely. You know, and I really too worried during that whole time and we're still in it, obviously about people who were in recovery and how many relapsed. like that was such yeah. a, it's, it's still stressful, but it was so stressful in the beginning um, that I just really worried about how folks were doing at that time. Yeah. Are you seeing an increase in young adult psychiatric issues due to or is there any way i mean i guess you yeah absolutely can't, like- so we're seeing an increase in mood disorders psychotic disorders substance use disorders emergency department usage for children and teens for suicidality there is a mental health crisis mm-hmm. right now as well as the pandemic and it's just it, it it has become worse because of the pandemic and unfortunately the pandemic upended everything because schedules were not consistent kids were on crazy sleep schedules which then led to other yeah. things uh, mentally um and for kids with ADHD i mean trying to learn on those computers it was just <laughs> a disaster <laughs> our kids really suffered and um i think now we know um that our kids need support which is one of the things that i wanted to share today that we're going to be looking at going into child and adolescent psychiatry um in charlotte with Hopeway so that we can bring the services that we have for adults to our teens and our oh, adolescents. Man. So, so excited. Awesome. That is music to our ears. Yeah. That is wonderful. What do you feel like are some of the most common misconceptions, you know, in our society around alcohol use and mental health? Well, I think you pointed out to it. One of the biggest misconceptions is that it's not harmful. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yes, it's legal, which makes it more accessible, which is the difficulty. Um, but we're seeing the same thing with marijuana right now. And actually marijuana use is escalating in, in younger adults even more than alcohol use. Mm-hmm. And so when you're when you're looking at alcohol and you think it's legal and it's all over the place, whether you're going to a you know cocktail bar or you're going to the grocery store or, or wherever, I mean, it's just such a part of our environment from a marketing perspective that it's almost normalized, like you said. And so for people who struggle with modulating their intake, um, there's just so many stressors and risk factors kind of all around in your face. Mm -hmm. What do you think the best techniques are in educating kids prior to experimental phase? So I think motivational interviewing is kind of the the thing that I really love. Um, Talking with your kids and, and just having an open conversation without any repercussions. So I always say to my kids, you know, I don't, I don't care what the answer is. So if you did something, I want to know. And the truth is more yeah. important. And so if you tell me the truth, there's not going to be a consequence. Mm. And so, you know, you want to establish that rapport so that if your child is at a party and did drink, that they know that they can call you for a ride or they can get money for an Uber. Um, because it will happen. Your kids are going to experiment and they're going to go down the same road many of us have. And so nor- like not normalizing the conversation, but talking about it and then, you know, talking about risks and alternatives for coping mechanisms, uh, modeling that behavior. So, you know, when you come home and you, you know, say you've had a horrible day and you're stressed out, let's go for a walk or let's do something fun. Um, instead of sitting down and having a glass of wine and then your child associates being stressed with drinking wine and then yeah. you glamorize it. Yeah. And then they think, oh, well, I want to, I want to have wine or I want to drink champagne. Yeah. I want to look um, older. I want to be, you know, like that. And so I think having open dialogue with your children, kind of talking through like, well, you know, why would you drink? Or let's talk about why kids drink and what are some of the consequences. And then, you know, if this happens, which it will, we need, we need to talk about it. Yeah. And then having rules, like, especially this one family that I was trying to work with, 
you have to have rules. Like if there's no consequences, kids will do whatever they want to do. And so if you are paying the bills and it's your home and you don't want alcohol use and marijuana use in your home, then that's the rule. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think parents have to model the behavior as well as enforce what they're saying. And again, that's really hard for parents too. I, I think that's one of the biggest issues is that that conversation never happens. Or if it does happen, it happens, it's like, oh, alcohol is bad. I want you to tell me something, or like tell me if you're doing it or whatever. And, and that's great from like a relational perspective. But I think it would be great if parents would actually put those consequences in prior, like Absolutely. during that conversation. Yeah. And I think that is one of the things that never happens. It's like, oh, well, we just end up waiting until there's an occurrence where there's substance use involved yeah. or something, yeah. there's so there a negative needs to be consequence. consequences, or else people don't change behavior. Yeah, yeah. and so expected consequences. Expected yeah. consequences, right. and I think it's challenging because you know parents get lazy, or maybe they have ADHD and they forget what they said, or yeah, they, whatever. But I mean, you have to have clear house rules, and you know, if you have to drug test your child, then you have to drug test your child, and. You can just say, you know, if you want to play lacrosse and wrestling, like we're going to urine drug screen you, you know, randomly throughout the year. And if it's positive, here's your consequences so that the person knows, you know, up front. Yeah. Not only having that that open dialogue, but having consequences is really important. Um, and they got to be ready changing. to follow through with them. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. And they have to trust you. Yes. And, and yes. you have to yes. mirror the same behavior. Yes. Well, yes. but it, and to your point earlier about psychoeducation, I mean, that is another what I feel a huge piece where. We can talk about it. You know, parents can give their kind of anecdotal, you know, view on what might happen and the risks and all that stuff. But I, I feel like there's a, it's lacking in, in, in the education piece. And I only say that because of, obviously, I grew up a long time ago. But when I did grow up, I didn't know what it meant to be an alcoholic. I knew I was one. <laughs> and I was like, okay with it because I didn't realize how far it was going to go and what that even looked like. Yeah. And I think if we can look at the curriculums and say, you know, in health education in, let's just say fourth grade, maybe start mm-hmm. having the conversations and um, talking about these things because kids need to know and kids start early and it, it is hard. And I think in terms of education, you know, I used to do a lot of talks at Fellowship Hall on addiction and one of them was the medical consequences of addiction. I mean, that's an hour-long talk. Mm -hmm. So how do you distill that information into two minutes that a teenager is going to listen to? (laughs) You know, how you message it. And then everything needs to be individualized. So, for example, my son, you know, he he just got a new job, or his first job, which is really exciting. And (laughs) then um, he was working out prior to going to work. And then he decided, no, I'm going to start working out when I come home at 1030. So then he's working out until midnight and then he's not tired. And then he takes a shower and it's two in the morning. Mm -hmm. So I had to say, Anthony, let's talk about the the issues with this and the the risks. Like your sleep is getting disturbed. Your mood could get disturbed. You're not going to be able to sustain this when you go to school. You know, what are your thoughts on this? So I finally got him to understand the pattern and the risks to now say, let's wake up early and work out, then go to work, and then go to sleep. And so, it, you know, that's just an example, but you really need to look at, like, schedules for these kids. Did he do because, it? Yeah, he did. Yeah. <laughs> He's doing it. He's working out right now, actually. Nice. I'd love to hear your take on healthy drinking. So if you do not have a family history of addiction and you are not prone to addiction, um, healthy drinking can be fine. Um, and, you know, if you want to model that behavior for your children, maybe you're having a big pasta dinner and you're having a glass of wine, you know, in Europe, kids will have a glass of wine with the parents. And so, you know, that's completely opposite of what we would do here. And you'd probably be looked at like crazy if you mm-hmm. did that with your kids. But on the other hand, you're allowing them to 
to see what it is and explore it instead of wanting to do that on their own and also them thinking that it's something they shouldn't do, which makes them want to do it more. Yeah. yeah. So um, I think there are ways to model healthy drinking if you do not have an addiction or a predisposition to an addiction or there's not somebody in the home with an addiction. Mm-hmm. And so in those situations, um, you can model healthy, healthy use. And that makes me think about what we're modeling. And, and you use the example of drinking a, re- a glass of red wine with pasta. That is like an enjoyment, like flavor, taste, you know, associated with food modeling. And what I see and what I witness in America is the modeling of self-medication. Yes. The, I need to wind down after work. I've had a long day drinking. Yeah. And I think that's the behavior that I'm talking about. So that would be a good example of how, if you can do that in your home, modeling healthy use of alcohol. So I always, like my husband will say, well, why do you want to have a glass of wine with dinner? Wouldn't you rather, you know, have it later i'm like no i want to enjoy it with my food mm-hmm. whereas he's just thinking well let's just drink later and you know have two or three glasses yeah. so there is a difference in mentality of of having it be part of the culinary experience yeah. versus just drinking to get a buzz i feel right. I, I feel like the people that do that like don't even need to have this conversation and the people that don't do it like don't want to do it like this yeah they don't <laughs> you know it's right. like Nobody wants to do this if they can't acknowledge that they have a problem. And so until we can get parents to look at their own behavior and model, you know, more uh, healthier behaviors, the kids are going to be learning from us. So it's just difficult. And I I think that's where the disconnect lies. And that's why these conversations aren't being had with their kids, because they, because most adults don't want to change their relationship to alcohol. And intuitively, they usually know that, you know, they may be drinking, even if it's not, you know, affecting their life too much in a negative way. They know that it's too much. Absolutely. Yeah. Man, my mind goes to like, I can speak to some of the clients, but the young kids who, who are battling, you know, being a 19 year old and drinking a lot. And then the parents just don't know what to do. And they, we got to send them to rehab and we got to do all these things. Meanwhile, the parents are drinking their asses off. (laughs) It's like, you can't expect Hello. you can't expect to lead a family without leading in a healthy way. Just as if you're running a business, you know, your mm-hmm. behavior is being monitored and watched and um, people do what they see. And so I think um, that's why family work in this field is so important um, so that we get everybody on the same page. Yeah. What are your tips in the harm reduction space? Like where would you go with someone who just wants to cut back, doesn't actually meet criteria for high level use disorder? Yeah. So for example, in those folks, you know, maybe they have hypertension or maybe they have some other medical issue that I can kind of leverage. And so I'll say, well, okay, you're drinking five glasses of Jack Daniels tonight. Um, You have high blood pressure. You're just increasing the risk for cardiac issues as well as you're gaining weight. So if we want to work on cutting down, can we, you know, start with three and then two. And so it's a process, you know, getting them to kind of just cut back. Um, now again, people who can't do that need to be fully done with it because mm-hmm. it's a slippery slope. And so if you have predisposition to addiction or you have an alcohol use disorder, you cannot effectively drink one or two glasses because it will not end there. Mm -hmm. Um, And so sometimes you have to be black and white and sometimes you can use harm reduction. It just depends on who the person is Mm -hmm. and all of their factors. But medication assisted treatment is also something that is underutilized. And a lot of treatment programs don't support medication because they see it as another psychoactive drug. But the medications we're talking about are not addictive Mm -hmm. and they actually can decrease heavy days of usage. They can decrease cravings. They can promote abstinence. And so things like naltrexone or Vivitrol can be very, very helpful. And really 
should be treated just like another issue on a treatment plan. If you had hypertension, your doctor is not going to let you just have hypertension. They're going to make a plan. So, okay, maybe we're going to start with exercise and healthy dieting. Let's see if that works. Good luck. But if it does, great. Um, But if it doesn't, you're going to go, you're going to go on a blood pressure medication. Mm -hmm. So the same thing with alcohol, you know, if you can get somebody to, you know, kind of cut down, that's ideal. Um, oftentimes you can't. And then looking at medication management is really important. Gotcha. Just like no blood pressure medicine for you. You have to eat better and exercise more. That's all we're going to let you do. (laughs) Yeah. Crazy. I know. I mean, it can work for some people, you know, with type two diabetes or mild hypertension, but you know, in America, people want a quick fix, and that's the problem. Yeah. That recovery oh, yeah. takes time and takes work. Um, and so, in a way, these medications are helpful because they are a medication that you can just take once a day, mm-hmm. or you can get a shot once a month, and it's really helpful. Um, but I don't think enough physicians understand the medications or prescribe them. And so, out of those 10% of Americans who are actually getting treatment, you know, how many of them are even getting offered some of these medications? And, and I really think that um, the more education we can do with doctors and, you know, other medical providers is really helpful as well. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there needs to be a massive push, especially with naltrexone and Vivitrol. Even primary care physicians ought to be prescribing that stuff Absolutely. left and right. Yeah. Agreed. Well, it's kind of like the, you know, for the, I don't want to say low level depression, but not the, you know, severe levels where it's designed to just kind of get you back on track coupled with behavioral changes and modifications, and all this kinds of things. It's the same thing. It's, well, and you so know, if you it's look not at, designed to be on for life. Yeah. And so if you look at the model that Hopeway does for, you know, mental health issues, we're, we're actually looking at everything. So the psychiatric issues, the medical issues, the substance use issues, but then you also see the psychiatrist, the therapist, the, and you go to group therapy and then you do all these other integrative therapies. So you're loading that person up for success. And the same thing has to be for folks with substance use disorders. Um, Their medical issues need to be treated. Their psychiatric issues need to be treated. They need to be treated with medication, most likely, in some cases, for their addiction. And go to AA meetings, go to NA meetings, get a sponsor, work the program. And then the physicians have to hold people accountable. You know, how many meetings did you go to? And, you know, maybe you need them to log it. And maybe you need to do breathalyzers. You know, you have to keep people accountable. Case management accountability. Yeah, accountability. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Totally. Now that you've been here for 40 minutes and kind of see what we do, what we talk about, do you have anything that you could tell us that we should focus more on? I guess if you wanted to have more in-depth conversations about things like I just mentioned about the medical consequences of addiction, I mean, mm-hmm. that's a PowerPoint presentation that I've you know given to lawyers and doctors and people all over North Carolina. So there's a lot of material in there that can be educational. Yeah. Talking about, you know, what's going on um, in the area in terms of resources so people know where to go when they need help. Yeah. Um, so if you're listening today, you don't know where to go, you can always call Hopeway. And even if you just need primary um, treatment for um, a substance use disorder, we can refer you to our colleagues here in North Carolina or across the country. Our number is one eight four four hopeway um, And our admissions team are all licensed um, professionals who do refer folks regularly to Fellowship Hall, Pavilion, Hazelden, and many of the other good programs in our yeah. country. You know, being in the field myself and talking to a lot of treatment professionals, obviously, well, maybe not obviously, but we've seen a, a lot uh, more of an increase in the level of acuity and, and severity in terms of mental health issues and substance use across the board from adolescents all the way to later adults, older adults. Can you tell us what you're seeing in, in our community right now and maybe how that's related to substances at all? 
Absolutely. So as as you said, all of us who are in the field are seeing an increase in all of the mental health issues as well as the addiction issues. Access is the number one problem right now because there's not enough places for people to yeah. get care. What we need to do is try and teach people like warning signs, like things to look for. So for example, how do you know if you're, depre- you're depressed, if you're immediate reaction is to kind of defend yourself and make and make other uh, reasons. So I'll give you an example. So say somebody's depressed and they say, well, you know, I'm just stressed out. I'm tired because I work so much. I'm a physician and, you know, I've got two kids and I'm running all over the place. And so I'm tired all the time. I'm eating more than normal and gain 10 pounds. I, you know, just don't feel like I'm getting joy um, in life experiences anymore. And, you know, every night, you know, I try and have a glass or two of wine to kind of help me settle down and help my anxiety. Like those are issues. Like we need to actually be helping that person. So I think that sounds normal to a lot of people, that story Mm -hmm. that I just shared. Um, And so your defense mechanism is, well, I don't have depression or I don't have anxiety. I'm just tired or I'm just stressed or I'm just working too much. And so really going to a professional that is an expert in behavioral health issues and psychiatry can be helpful to say, well, that actually isn't ideal. And there are ways that we can work on your health um, in a more productive way. So I think another talk that would be helpful is kind of signs and symptoms and what to look out for, because a lot of people who are struggling with depression or anxiety are self-medicating with alcohol. And that's like become our norm. Like, it's like, we're in this, everybody's grinding, you know, everybody's, you know, barely got their head above water. Everybody's struggling. So it's okay for me to struggle too. Right. Well, and it's becoming normalized. And there's yeah. this mentality that the world is ending. I mean, there's <laughs> well, wars, there's climate be. change, there's... there's. It's <laughs> overwhelming. And so imagine having an anxiety disorder and then worrying about all of those things no, and worrying about right. your finances with inflation and that's everything right. else going on. Yeah. Um, and so if you look at, you know, health equity and war and political issues and yes. mass shootings across America. Yes. Um, no wonder people are stressed. Yes. We're all stressed. And, and so gotta... how do you differentiate from what's a normal response to a response that maybe you need help for is hard because I think so many of us are probably in that same boat. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you could, all, we could Everybody probably all is. benefit from yeah. therapy. Yeah. I go. No question. <laughs> and then another issue we have is like you said, access, but, but even uh, the financial barriers to getting mental health treatment. Well, and that goes along with access, access that's affordable and, yeah. and reachable. Um, and that's a challenge too for, you know, folks that don't have cars or don't have a job to pay for treatment or don't have insurance. And we see a lot of facilities around the country who don't take insurance. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm really proud that we take all major insurance carriers at Hopeway and, um, about 99.8% of our folks use insurance. Nice. In addition to that, we're a nonprofit and we do raise money for financial assistance. So if your insurance drops you, mm-hmm. unlike a private company who would yeah. discharge you home Time on a go. Friday at five o'clock, we will give you bridge funding and then work on a transition plan You know, within the next week that is safe. Wow. So increased access that's affordable and of quality is a challenge because there's also a lot of treatment providers out there that are not good, are not run by people that you and I would want to, you know, affiliate with. Yes, <laughs> yes, we are aware. That's uh, a lot of our jobs. Just Patrick and I personally is navigating through that stuff, man. God. Give us three good tips for somebody that wants to cut back on their alcohol use. So if you're thinking about wanting to quit, I think the first thing is acknowledging that. So yes, I'm, I'm ready to do something about it. 
Um, and then finding an accountability partner, whether it's nice. your spouse or your friend or a colleague, almost like a personal trainer. You know, if you want to lose weight, maybe you need a personal trainer to help you be accountable. So finding an accountability partner um, and then seeking professional help, um, especially here in Charlotte. We have the Dilworth Center, which does an amazing job. Hopeway can treat you for your primary mental health issues. And then if you need further drug and alcohol um, residential treatment, we can, you know, then work with Fellowship Hall or Pavilion or wherever you need to go. So I think reaching out to a professional is important, too because again, these are brain diseases and these are chronic diseases. And just like hypertension or diabetes, you would go to your doctor. Um, and so we encourage you to, to seek professional care. What would you say would be three benefits of cutting back or quitting drinking alcohol? Well, one benefit is that you will not gain as much weight because hey. you're not drinking calories that are useless. <laughs> the next benefit would be stabilized sleep. And if sleep is disrupted, that can lead to a lot of psychiatric difficulties, including depression um, or anxiety, as well as bipolar disorder. So you'll sleep better, you will lose weight, and you will have more energy during the day to be productive. Perfect. Love it. Perfect. Dr. Allison karaski Maisie, why do you care? I care because these diseases hit all of our families, and I have seen it in my own family. Uh, my grandfather uh, had alcoholism and um, was also a veteran uh, in World War II, and so most likely struggled with PTSD that was never diagnosed and self-medicated with alcohol. It has it affected my grandmother and their relationship, and my aunts and uncles. And so, you know, I think looking looking at things as a physician. And looking at wellness, um, this is one major component, again, that you need to look at in addition to your medical issues and your psychiatric issues um, so that you can be your most productive self. Awesome. Perfect. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. This was fun. Out with us today. Thank you for having us. Thank Thanks for you everything so you do in the community, too. Thank you. Absolutely. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are solely those of the hosts and guests and are not a substitute for medical advice. If you feel like you may need professional help, here are some resources. For the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration hotline, call 1-800-662-4357 or visit smsa.gov. For listeners in the Charlotte, North Carolina community, visit dilworthcenter.org or call 704-372-6969 or visit theblanchardinstitute.com or call 704-288-1097.